Guys, new series today. And the series is called Pray It Like Jesus. Today is the first part of four parts. And as you can see on our screen, the theme is praying through our fears. Praying through our fears. Now, this is a series on the book of Psalms. Personally, I love an Old Testament series because it takes us back to the foundational stories of the New Testament, right? It helps us to see how Jesus is the continuation of what happened in the first part of the Bible called the Old Testament and helps us to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises given to us in the Old Testament. It helps us to see Jesus in a whole new light. So I'm really, really excited about this series. Now, it's a series on the book of Psalms. It's not a series on prayer, but we'll see how the book of Psalms will give us a language to pray with, which means that we will eventually feel like our prayer lives are really, really being enriched. Now, the reason why we call this series Pray It Like Jesus is the fact that Jesus himself, as a Jewish man who lived on the earth, prayed the Psalms. He recited them, he sung them, he prayed them every single day. And in the Gospels, as we read it, we even see how Jesus at certain points recites the Psalms or prays the Psalms to express how he felt and what he was going through. And today we are going to specifically look at the topic of fear. So there you go. I'm just going to stop sharing my screen for now and then we'll, uh, we'll get back into the scriptures. So the plan for today, guys, is not that I will have three points to my sermon, but I will definitely have three steps or three movements to my sermon. And I'm giving this to you up front just so that you can keep on tracking with me. I'm going to make uh, some weighty introductory remarks about the book of Psalms. So we're going to start there because in the beginning of a series, in a new book, we really need to get our heads around what this is and how this works. Secondly, we are going to work through the psalm really slowly in the stanzas that Sanaba read it in now because it's rich in language, it's very rich in images, and it's very rich in a, the historical background okay, of the Bible. So we need to take some time and we need to read it slowly. And then lastly, our third step will be we are going to land with what it means if we would pray the psalm like Jesus? What if we take the language and the meaning of this psalm and we start praying it ourselves? So that's our three movements. Introductory remarks about the psalms, working through this specific psalm slowly, and then thinking in the end, what would it be like if we pray this psalm? Now, let me just say right off the bat that prayer is one of those topics that none of us can ever claim that we haven't all nailed down. There's always something to learn. There's always a new perspective to gain. It's one of those things that if people say, listen, guys, do you want to talk about prayer tonight? Pretty much no one will ever say no, right? Because there's so much to learn. And because it's so intimate and because it's so personal, it really gets to the heart of our lives of faith. So I'm excited about the series and excited about this sermon this morning. Let me just make a, a couple of introductory remarks about the book of Psalms. Firstly, it is poetry. So it's a specific type of literature. And I don't really have to explain the basics of poetry to you guys, but you know that poetry is a very unique 
literature type. So it's 150 poems. Every single psalm has a type and every single psalm has a situation from which it was written, from which it arose, or a point in history that birthed the psalm. So there's praise psalms, there's lamentations, there's some historical narratives, there are prayers, etc., etc. I mean, in 150, 150 psalms, you get quite a scope of a type of psalm. So today's psalm, newsflash, is a prayer, specifically a prayer. So every single psalm has a type, which means that we have to read it for all it's worth. We have to read it for what it is. And every psalm has a situation, so some background, information, and history behind it. Some of the psalms has a very clear situation, and some of the psalms claims who the writer was. So today is a psalm like this. You saw it when Sanaba read it. It's a psalm of David, and there's something very specific that happened that made him write the psalm. We'll get back to that a little bit later. Now, the reason why we say that the Psalms can help us to form a language for prayer is because the Psalms historically was used in this way to teach the people of God how to pray. I mean, if you are a parent, you would know what I'm talking about now. And if you were a child at some point, you would also know what I'm talking about now when I say that we learn how to speak to specific people in specific circumstances that it is appropriate, right? I remember always getting the briefing before my mom would drop me off at a birthday party. Say please, say thank you, compliment the tani if she looks beautiful, tell her that the food is nice, say to her that you enjoyed the party and that you'd love to come back again. Remember these lines, dude, like that's how I was trained as a kid. Now the people of God, when it comes to prayer, are trained and were trained historically by using the Psalms, saying, this is how you pray. This is what you say. So the Jewish people specifically, even to this day, they use the Psalms cyclically or every single day, they would have specific Psalms that they recite at a specific moment in the day. So there's a Psalm for the morning, there's a Psalm for lunchtime, there's a Psalm for the evening, there's a Psalm for mid-morning, there's a Psalm for mid-afternoon. And you can imagine, as you keep on reciting and reading these, how they become part of your language. Jesus did it. And that's why I said earlier that he even used the Psalms to explain how he felt at some points. It's like the Psalms was in his mouth. Now, if you know the book of Psalms, you would know how awesome Psalm 1 is. If you don't know the book, then go and read Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says that blessed is the one who meditates on the word of God day and night. Now, that word meditate is really, really cool. And it's a massive rabbit hole. I don't even have it on my notes, but I just thought about it now. So I'm going to give it to you anyway. The Hebrew word there is hagar. It's a word that describes feasting. It's a word that gets used to describe a lion with a chunk of meat in their mouth and then growling. I'm definitely not going to make a growling sound this morning on this call, let me be honest. But it's that sound of enjoyment and of feasting. It's a sound that gets used to describe the sound that a dove makes, right? It's this throat, um, uh, the continuation of sound in the mouth. The psalm writer says that the one who has the word of God in his mouth, feasting on it, continuously reciting it and saying it, that's the one who is blessed. 
So the Psalms are used like that every single day. Another remark about the Psalms is that the Psalms are very emotive, right? It's full of the human experience. It's witnessing the ways that God is perceived in human life. So if I experience this, then I experience God like that. Or when I found myself in this position, this is what I thought and experienced of God. It's, it's powerful, powerful stuff. It speaks to what we experience every single day. Now, it's interesting if you speak about emotions and the place of emotions in prayer, our family of origin actually, I think, plays a massive role in our lives. Some of you might have grown up in contexts where you never share your emotion. You just stuff it. You just ignore it. Don't speak about it. Others of us might have grown up in situations where your emotions takes the volume up to quite a significant level and where you just give it full blast you know you can say what you want to whoever you want however you want it those are like the two extremes on the spectrum the psalms teaches us what's interesting a kind of a third way the psalms invites us into sharing our emotions but it also doesn't allow us to have our emotions take us over you'll see now in psalm 3 exactly what i mean the psalm says that there's place for your emotions but the space for your emotions is to work through them. And that's why we are saying that today's theme is praying through your fears. So it's naming them, it's speaking about them. You'll see as we go through the psalm, but it's not letting it take you over. It's working through it. Last remark that I want to make on the psalms, and I see I've been going for 10 minutes already, my bad, um, is it's really meaningful to study the life of David. As you read the Psalms, I mean, we are going to do four Psalms in the month of June. Three of them was written by David or is attributed to David. So it's only Psalm 73 that was written by Asaph, but I'll leave more and then to unpacking that to you guys. And um, 70 of the Psalms carry the name of David, right? So it's almost half of the 115. And 24, more or less, of these Psalms have a background story. So if you see a Psalm of David, you'll hit almost two dozen Psalms that tells you, listen, there's a background story to this. And it's really revealing to go and read the background stories. Some of you in your translations, you might have footnotes that shows you this is the other place in the Bible where the circumstances around the Psalm gets described to you. So it'll be meaningful to go and read the life of David. It'll be meaningful to actually work through the Psalms, maybe see if you can read two or even three a day if you want to, to just get into the space of what this literature type is. Okay, so that's introductory remarks about the Psalms. Now let's work through it really, really slowly. Let's look at the language, let's look at the images, and let's look at the historical background. I'm going to share my screen for quite a length of time now. So you'll see my face a little, uh, well, small in the corner, and then you'll see the scriptures that Sanaba read to us. So let's get going on the first two verses of Psalm 3. First thing that I want you to see is um, that the title that is used for God in this psalm is God's very personal and intimate name, Yahweh or Yahweh. It doesn't speak of an impersonal God. It speaks to God 
using the name that God gave himself. I am who I am, Yahweh. Okay, that's really important. So right off the bat in this song, we should go very, very personal. Secondly, this psalm speaks about a very specific fear and anxiety, and we'll get back to that now. But I want you to know that fear is a very primal and a very complex emotion right, that humans experience. So I'm not going to go about this lightly. And then lastly, look at the heading of this psalm. So save me, oh my God. That is a heading that was given to the people who edited and who compiled the book of Psalms. But this part that is in italics that says, oh, sorry, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. That is a original part of the Psalm as it was written by David to give that piece of historical context. So here we go. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Let me just take a rest here. That's what Selah means. So what I want you to see is that he is fearful, right? There's proper fear going on here. And what is that fear? Well, that fear is the fact that there's 12,000 foot soldiers chasing after David. We'll get back to his story now. There's a real identifiable threat that is threatening his life. But then I also want you to see in verse 2, that there's something else also troubling David, and that is propaganda that is being spread about him, saying stuff about him, and saying stuff about his soul, about his innermost being. So if we think about fear and anxiety, it's maybe meaningful to think about fear as a temporary, momentary flood of emotions, because there's something that's happening to me, and I can see it, and I react to it, and I want to flee from it, right? Fear is maybe like a thunderstorm in Pretoria. Let's face it, the old high felt thunderstorm is quite a privilege. It comes, you can see it coming, it happens, and then it leaves. Whereas anxiety, it's, 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 more difficult to, um, it's more difficult to define. It's almost like exactly what I'm looking at now at the window. The sun is shining but it's not warm. The grass isn't green anymore. Our grass was filled with ice this morning. It's dusty. Your car's dirty, but it doesn't really look dirty. Your hands are dry because it's winter. Your nose is parched. It looks like it should be a really lovely summer's day, but it's not. Anxiety is kind of like a winter in Pretoria. It's consistent. It's always there. You can't really name exactly what it is that's bothering you or what it is that's troubling you, but it is there, right? So we have both in the psalm, in verses 1 and 2. So let's just pick up David's story to help us understand what exactly is going on here. So I'm going to retell parts of David's story just for us to get a grip on this, okay? So here we have verse 1 and 2. So guys, I think it's important for us to remember where David came from, right? David used to look after sheep. He was a shepherd. He was the youngest of the boys of a man named Jesse. A very important prophet of God. 
pops into Jesse's house and goes, listen, the next king of Israel will come from this house. Jesse goes, yeah, 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 dude, I know exactly who you're talking about. My firstborn, he's strong, he's attractive, he's well-skilled, he'll be your king. And as the prophet works through the sons of Jesse, he goes, uh, I haven't really found the one. Is it possible for you that you maybe have more sons? And then he goes, yeah, yeah, I do. But I mean, I've only got David. And then the prophet of God goes, this is your next king. And you guys know the story of David. At least the first two thirds of his life is phenomenal and very, very successful, right? He's a brilliant soldier. He's a brilliant general. He's a phenomenal commander in chief. And he's a beautiful, 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 awesome king, right? The nation of Israel is successful under him. They have a lot of riches. They really have a brilliant army. It's a nation that worships God. It's a nation that gets things right. It's a nation that looks like the nation that God called them to be. Then there's this tipping point in David's life where he took everything that was good, everything that God has given him, and he starts squandering it. He starts abusing it. And the biggest one of those moments was the day that David saw a woman, forced himself on him, got her pregnant, murdered her husband, and then his whole family just fell apart from that point. So it is really a story that goes like that, and then it just goes downhill from that point onwards. David's whole life falls apart. His wife is bitter towards him. His kids, the hate between his kids is just devastating. His one son rapes his one daughter, and then his other son kills that son because of him raping his sister. And then his one son, Absalom, stages this. He, he creates a resistance army, stages a coup, and eventually uh, is successful in lifting his dad from the throne and then claims the power and says that I am now king. And that son was Absalom. And that's where we pick up the story. So David, this one successful man to God's own heart, brilliant, brilliant king, is just losing it all. It's all crashing down. Everything that he held dear, his whole story of success, is just fading away in front of him. And his son is chasing after him, eventually, to kill him. It's not only his son chasing after him, it's his son and 12,000 other guys chasing after him. And not only are they chasing after him, but they are spreading propaganda. And the propaganda that they're spreading is that he's lost it. He's not God's chosen king anymore. Everything that God has given him is now taken away from him. This once successful king that God chose himself and that he anointed, that he went to go and get on the fields where the sheep were, that king is not God's king anymore. So everything that David finds his significance in, everything that David could say was given to him that gave him stature and reputation and glory is taken away from him. That's why he's afraid. So it's not only the fact that he sees soldiers chasing after him, but he feels anxious because they say that God is done with him. They say that there's no more salvation for him. They say that whatever he thought about himself is now being lost. And what does David do? He names it. Did you guys see that in the first two verses? He says, this is what I'm afraid of. And this is what I'm anxious about. Let me share screen with you again, and then we'll um, head into verse 3 and 4. 
This is what I'm afraid of. Many, many. This is what I'm anxious about. Many. And what's making me anxious is I'm losing my soul. I'm losing my innermost being. I don't know who I am anymore. I feel like I'm losing a grip on God's grace and God's love in my life. So what does he do? What does he do? He turns his attention to God. So look at verse 3 and 4. But you, Yahweh, right, the God that can be known, the God that can be spoken to, here's what I know and confess about you. And everything in red is what I want you to have a look at. I'll say a couple of remarks about that and then we'll move on. A shield, my glory, the lifter of my head. And here's what I did. I cried aloud and he answered me from his holy hill. Let's just pause for a second and look at all these words and try and get behind the meaning of it. So I've named my, I've named my fears. I've named my anxiety. And they're going to kill me if I don't do anything about it. So I'm going to turn my attention to God. What do I know about God? He is my shield. He will protect me. He will cover me. He will protect my vital organs. He will make sure that I don't die. He will be right there with me, present personally when the danger comes. Like a shield around me and around my body. Why? Because he's my glory. Now glory is a really important word in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is the word kavot or kavod, if you want to. You can even say it with a B, kavot. It means weight. It means significance. It means stature. It means heavy, right? It means substance. So if we glorify God, what do we do? We say to him that he's important. He's weighty. He's got substance. He's got stature. If we say that we have glory, it's exactly the same thing. Right? I've, I've weight, I have presence, I have stature, I have a reputation. If something is heavy, we even use that word, right? This is a really heavy thing. Or that's quite a weighty matter. Or that person in the law space is quite a heavy weight, right? That person has glory in that space. Now remember where David put his glory. He put his glory in his kingship. He put his glory in his authority. He put his glory in his riches. He put his glory in his success story. And what now? Well, all of that is now tumbling down right in front of him. So does he have no glory anymore? Or did he misplace his glory? Did he find his, significant, uh, his significance and his stature and his reputation in other things? Well, he did, obviously. And he started abusing those things. And now that, he don't now, now that he doesn't have that anymore, people look at him and say, you don't have that anymore. God is done with you. You have no glory left. And then David gazes upon God and says, but, but you, you are my glory. You are the one that gives me significance. You are the one that gives me stature. 
You are the one whose opinion about me makes me who I am. You are the lifter of my head. You are the one that gives me confidence. Your opinion is the one that matters, right? Lifter of my head is exactly the way we use it in English. Keep your head up. Walk with confidence. Lift up your head. Don't hang your chin. Why? Because I say so, right? That is what we say to people. David says, once I turn my attention to God, even in the face of all this present and very real dangers, I realize that he's the one that protects me. He's the one that will help me. He's the one that is personally present with me, whose opinion about me matters. And he's the one that says to me, keep my head up. It's not about your kingship. It's not about your riches. It's not about your achievement. It's about the fact that I love you. And there's mercy and grace from my side for you. So, okay, wait, 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 where does it say that he has mercy and grace? Well, just look at the, the, the next line. I cried aloud to the Lord. Question, when was the last time you prayed and you cried aloud? Just ask him. Sometimes, especially as reformed people, we're so pious that we don't actually want to use an audible word. You know, it's so personal, it's so intimate. David says, well, that might be the fact for you, but do. If I pray, I pray aloud. And I cry aloud to the Lord and I asked him to save me. And here's what I saw. He answered me from his holy hill. Now, unfortunately, I can't rabbit hole in terms of a holy hill. But guys, remember that David established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And on the highest hill in Jerusalem, where the, um, the Dome of the Rock stands today, was the tabernacle, the place of God's presence. It's eventually where the temple was built as well. It's the place where your sins are covered. It's the place where there's sacrifices, where blood flows. And once the sacrifice is done and the blood flows, your sin is covered. David knows that that hill is the symbol of the fact that my sins are covered. Did David do sin? Absolutely he did. Did he commit terrible sins? Yes, he did. And it's because of those sins that his whole kingdom is falling apart now. And then he says, I cried out to the Lord. And what I remembered and what I saw is that he answered me from his holy hill, saying to me that he covers me and he covers my sin. He forgives me. He gives me mercy. And he gives me grace. He answered me from his holy hill. From the place where his mercy and grace can be seen. There would always be some smoke of the sacrifices that's being brought. For an Old Testament person, there has to be daily sacrifices. Because there's daily sin that has to be atoned for. There's this day of atonement, Yom Kippur, it's called in the Old Testament. Where um, they celebrate the covering of everything that they've done wrong towards God. Because of this one big sacrifice that gets brought to him on this one day. The moment David turns his attention to God, his whole perspective shifts and his whole perspective changes. Now, guys, let me just say, for us, as people living in 2021, I almost said 2020, and then I realized, so that was done. For us living in 2021, who has the New Testament, 
who knows that Jesus died on the cross to atone for our sins, who knows that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, who knows that Jesus Christ poured out his spirit over us, we can identify with this verse because God is our shield and personally with us as well through his Holy Spirit. That is really good news. You never ever ever have to wonder if God is present in your circumstances, whether it is fear, whether it is anxiety, because he is. The New Testament teaches us that he anoints us with his Holy Spirit if we uh, confess our faith in him and if we are believers. I mean, think about the glory that God has given us. I mean, why on earth would you feel insignificant or like a person with no stature or reputation if God himself chose to die for you? Spit in the face for you. Nails in the hands and feet for you. Whips on the back for you. Like, how much more glory do we want? And not only that, not only does he save us, atone for us and cover for us, he brings us into his body. He dwells inside of us through his Holy Spirit. He binds us into his mission of reaching people with his good news and seeing his kingdom come in the world. How much more glory do you want? Like we've got it all. That lifts our head. Absolutely. And if we look at the holy hill, we don't see a daily pillar of smoke. We see a cross where everything was atoned for. Every, 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 everything. We confess our sins. He forgives us for it because it's atoned for. We don't even have to bring a sacrifice, guys. This is phenomenal news for us. David knew it. We know it even better because it was revealed to us through the course of the story of the Bible. That is the good news for us as Christians. So we can pray the psalm. We can use the words of the psalm. And when we say it, we know it because we know how the story goes. Okay. So now that David knows how the story goes, now that David sees that he had a misplaced glory, but there's a different glory that's given to him by God. Now that David sees that there's forgiveness and mercy and justice for him, what does he do? He takes a nap goes to sleep. He rests in Yahweh's mercy and in his grace. And not only that, he leaves it in the hands of God to sort it out. Isn't it just brilliant? That even though there's still a real present danger, even though there's still horrible propaganda being spread about me, I just, I can't be bothered about it. This doesn't matter. Going to keep going, even though there might be some trials and tribulations lying ahead for me. Now, we know that David was restored as king after this whole ordeal. I'll get back to how the story ended now. But think of the Apostle Paul as well keeping going, staying faithful, doing what he's called to do in the face of some really, really, really heavy persecution. David takes a rest, leaves it in God's hands. And says, I will not be afraid. And the many is still there. Do you guys see the red word? Many of thousands of people are still after him. But he says, I'm not going to be afraid. Do you guys see it? Named it. Turned his attention to God. Got his glory and atonement right. And then says, I'm not going to be afraid. I started out with, I'm really afraid. Turns in verse 6 and says, I won't be afraid. 
Now, what happens in verse 7 to 8 might leave some of us uncomfortable because this is some really raw emotion. And we might feel, as Christian people, Davy, Sham, uh, these words are a little harsh, dude. I mean, how can you want revenge on the people, right? You were the wrong one. You were the one that just said that you misplaced your glory. Now, all of a sudden, you have all these cries for justice and all these raw emotions. Well, guys, welcome to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is full of it. Emotional, real, raw language. And in this case, anger. And not only anger, a cry for justice. Now, God is never surprised by your anger. And he can handle it. What I want you to see what the psalm teaches us is, should David say nothing about his anger? No, absolutely not. He prays through it and he leaves it with God. Please sort it out. Because if I leave it with me, or if I'm going to try and sort it out myself, it's going to take over my whole being. And I don't want that. God, I'm going to leave this to you. Now, if you follow the story of David, you'll know that this whole situation that is in currently ended with David not doing anything. It ended with his son Absalom, very vain, loving his hair. He took a lot of pride in his hair. In the middle of battle, getting his hair stuck in a branch of a tree, hanging from his hair, and then someone throwing him with a spear and killing him. That's how this story ended. God took care of that one and not David himself. David actually didn't lift a finger in sorting out this whole story. And then he was restored back as king. Selah. What do you guys say about that? It's a weighty psalm now, isn't it? Beautiful language. So much history. Let's land the plane here. But just asking the question, what would the psalm mean if we prayed it like Jesus? I mean, just, just look at the structure of the psalm. Name what is bothering you, whether it is fear, a very present, very real, describable thing, or anxiety, this thing that you can't put your finger on, but, it, but it's eating you from the inside, makes you doubt who you are, makes you doubt in God's goodness and faithfulness. Name it. Reclaim your sense of who you are, right? That was verse 3 to 4. Knowing that God is your shield. Knowing that God is the one that lifts your head. Saying it out loud to him. Looking to the mountain for his salvation. And then resting in that. Knowing that he will take care of it. Voicing your anger and your frustration towards him. And then going through that and having him sort it out. Just think about that. Right? That's the structure of this song. Are you guys aware of the fact that Jesus sang this song? That he prayed the song, that he recited the song, that he feasted on the song. Think about when the crowds would push back against Jesus, saying stuff like he works in, uh, in a team with the devil. How that pushed against Jesus' glory and his significance. Think about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that there's real people 
coming to get him in only a few hours time, reciting the songs, singing the songs, praying the songs. Imagine Jesus sitting around a table with some folks saying, dude, why don't you just ascend to the throne? Let's just get our army together. Get a couple of folks with swords. We'll march into Jerusalem. We'll lift them from the throne. Then you can have all the glory. You can have all the significance. You will be called the Messiah, the one that we're waiting for. Jesus going, mm -mm, mm -mm. God is my glory. God is my glory. He's the one that lifts my head. Imagine Jesus doing miracles that no one can argue with. It's right there in front of their eyes. And then they say stuff like, how can he do this? He was only the son of Joseph. Jesus says, but God is the one that lifts my head. Right? Isn't it just phenomenal to think that Jesus worked with the psalm daily? Question, what would happen if we also prayed this prayer? What would happen if we used this language? If we would be willing and courageous enough to say that we are afraid and to say that we are anxious, not only to say it, but to say why. And then after we've said it, to turn our attention to God, to look at him, to appreciate him as the protector of us, to appreciate him as the one that is with us in these trials. To see again that it doesn't matter what anyone says about us. God is our glory, guys. It doesn't matter who says what about you. It doesn't even matter what you think about yourself. God is your glory. We can walk with heads that's lifted up. Because He is our glory. We can have a good night's rest and not be anxious. Because He will cover for us. We can tell him how we feel in real emotional language and then leave it with him to say, I'm not going to be angry about this thing anymore. I'm not going to be frustrated about this thing anymore because it will chow me from the inside. I'm going to leave it with you. Why? Well, guys, because verse 8 is also true for us. Verse 8 says, salvation belongs to the Lord and your blessing be on your people. God's blessing rests on us. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. When Jesus said that on the cross, what he meant was the unbelievably, almost unstoppable, strong cycle of sin and destruction is dealt with. It's done. We're making a turn here. It will not be the kingdom of darkness anymore. It will be the kingdom of light. It will not be the prince of this world. It will now be the prince of the kingdom. It will not be that people will stay stuck in this mess of sin and destruction and death. I'm going to lift them out of it. They're going to live a different way from now on forwards. Or from now on forward. I think that's the right way to say. That's the good news for us. And the psalm invites us into praying. And the psalm invites us to pray through our fears. The psalm invites us to pray it like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we look to you. We want to name our fears and anxieties. And then we want to allow you to speak back to us, to remind us of your protection, to remind us of our glory, to remind us of our atonement and salvation. We want to lean into this. We want to speak to you in an even more authentic and real way. And more than that, Lord Jesus, we want to
pray through our fears. Because we don't want to be afraid anymore. And we don't want to be anxious. Because there's really no reason for us to do that. And the song has made it plain to us again this morning. The good news of your, of your death and resurrection, ascension and the pouring out of your Holy Spirit gives us no reason to be afraid. I pray that this word will build us up. I pray that we would have the courage to pray this, this prayer. And I pray that you would bless our time now as we mull over, speak over and suss out what it is that you would want us to do with this portion of scripture. I pray that in your name.